Well, welcome to you. Happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Uh, at the end of our service, I'll pray for our dads specifically. But let's now turn to God's Word. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes 8 and 9. Ecclesiastes, just slightly to the right of the middle of most Bibles. We've been working our way through this book, taking about a, a chapter or two on a Sunday. And today we come to Ecclesiastes 8 and 9. We've been noticing that Ecclesiastes is what we call wisdom literature. And Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 specifically address wisdom head on. These chapters describe and apply and situate wisdom. So let's get our thinking going. Let's get our gears turning. Just think inside your own head. What is wisdom? What is a wise person? Who is wise? What does wisdom look like? That's sort of the question that begins chapter 8. Notice in verse 1, who is like the wise? Second question, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? What is wisdom? Who is wise? What is a wise man? Who really knows how to size something up to analyze it? If you had asked me as a kid let's say, early teenage years, to describe a wise man, I probably would have tried to imagine those wise men that visited the Christ child in Matthew 2. I probably would have thought of old men with Fu Manchu mustaches, boring guys, guys that speak in enigmas and write fortune cookies. I would have thought of those who are somewhat detached from the real world and detached from a flux of emotions. Well, those perceptions about wisdom are actually generated not by the Bible, but by Hollywood. Our passage corrects at least one misconception right up front. The second question, after asking who is like the wise, we get a brief summary description. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. A wise man is a happy man. He's almost a glowing man. Well, from here, Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 answer the questions of verse 1, and they flesh out the fresh, shining face of the wise referred to in verse 1. Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 do this in roughly five different ways. Wisdom under human authorities, wisdom before God, wisdom regarding life and death, wisdom in the home, in day-to-day -day life, and wisdom with the unknown. By the way, that's not exactly my outline, so if you're a note taker and you think I just gave you exactly the outline, I didn't. You might hope that you have a pencil with you to erase what you've already filled in on the sermon notes page. That's roughly where we're going. I'll use slightly different language. We'll take each one of those one at a time and read each section as we come to it. You should know that I'm going to cruise through at least four of these to give more time to one of them, to one of these five sections. We're going to take more time on that because I think it's central to the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's probably the one that we could use the most reflection and application on. So here's the first section. We could call it wisdom under rulers. The first nine verses of chapter 8. Rulers. In this case, in this time, in the context of Ecclesiastes, rulers has to do with a king and a Jewish king at that. So let's read chapter 8 verses 1 to 9. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. 
For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Well, this is wisdom under rulers. Let me just summarize some of the high points without getting into too many particulars. There's the reality of human authority that we need to consider here. In the context of Ecclesiastes, again, in the Old Covenant, that meant the authority of a king, and specifically a Davidic king, to whom are specific promises, or as it says here, oaths. And this is written specifically to a young man. We know Ecclesiastes is written to a young man. Look at chapter 11, verse 7, if you want a reference for that. And apparently, a young man who would likely be in service to one of those Davidic kings. So that's the context, the historical context. And here's some advice for what that one working for the king should do, what he should think, how he should handle things. Do what he says, verse 2. Don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence, verse 3. Don't seek to overthrow him, verse 3. Generally speaking, the king is supreme, verse 4. Now I added, generally speaking, it's not in our text, because that's assumed with this kind of wisdom literature. Hebrew wisdom literature is not written in a way that interacts with every exception. You probably know this from the book of Proverbs, that the book of Proverbs communicates general truths to us, not universal promises. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. That is generally true, and you need to lean on that general truth and train up your children right. However, there are exceptions to it, and there are exceptions to when you should follow the king or when you should not follow the king. You take Daniel in the time when he was in Babylon under a foreign king. Daniel obeyed and honored that king. In some ways, he, he exemplified what we read here in Ecclesiastes 8. But at times, he refused to obey the king when the king said to do something contrary to God's commands. Daniel didn't deny the legitimacy of human authority. Neither did he treat it as ultimate authority. Or we could fast forward to New Testament times where Jesus acknowledged the legitimacy of human secular government in the Roman Empire, but he also taught about the limitations of that authority. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render unto God that which is God. Paul in Romans 13 follows suit in what Jesus taught, and he fleshes it out even more about how Christians relate to secular government. We can't take the time today to flesh out the differences between, let's say, a Davidic king and a Roman emperor, much less the differences between us now in the new covenant and those of the old covenant. Or we could say between those of the old covenant and us today in a democratic republic here in the U.S. By the way, make sure you know that there is a difference. We don't have time today to talk about the difference. But make sure you know that verses about an Old Testament Jewish king do not immediately translate to the U.S. president. If you want more on God and government, you could see an old sermon I did back in May of 2013 from 1 Peter 2 called Dual Citizenship. Or if you want a little book, Mark Dever has a great little book just called God and Politics. That'd be worth your time if you're needing to think on this some more. But know this, know that there is wisdom to be had, there is wisdom to be applied in living life under human authorities. And no small part of that is, verse 7, accepting the unknown. You don't know what is to be. Who can tell how it will be? 
Governments change. Kings, the best of them, are sometimes fickle. You don't know if he'll send you to war and you'll die. You don't know if he'll lead his people into adversity or into prosperity. But generally speaking, especially here in the context of kings and in the context of Old Testament Jewish kings, obey the king, honor the king, don't seek to overthrow him. The second section, we could call it wisdom before God. Wisdom before God, verses 10 to 17 of chapter 8. Let's read those verses. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of men is, set, is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there, is, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Well, this is wisdom before God. And I'll just summarize the high points again here without getting too bogged down with details. Verses 10 to 11 tell us that justice is coming in the end, but it may not be apparent and it might be delayed. The wicked will die, verse 10 says. Even those who for a time seemed pious, and they did religious things, verse 10 says, even those who were praised for being religious, like maybe the priests in Malachi's time, well, even they will eventually face the end. Even their life is vanity. It's fleeting. It has futility. That justice may not be executed swiftly or speedily, verse 11, but they're evil, and all, in fact, will meet God at their death. All are evil, in fact. All are evil, according to this passage. Yes, there is a, a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and yet there is a category that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So fear God, verse 12 Fear God and it will be well with you, it says. Fearing God's come up a couple of times already in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're prone to misunderstand it. Fearing God is not dreading God. We have to remember that the most frequent command in all the Bible is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. So there has to be a kind of good fear like is talked about here, and there has to be a kind of bad fear that, that Christians who are right with God don't need to have, and they shouldn't have. For those in covenant fellowship with God, with their sins forgiven, they don't need to dread God anymore. But they do need to stand in awe of him. Here are some quotes that might help. One that I use almost every time we mention the fear of God by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. Old Testament scholar Michael Eaton 
It says, fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from realization of the greatness of God. John Calvin began his classic text, Institutes of the Christian Religion, by saying, all wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves should produce a proper fear of God. Remember that Proverbs begins by saying, this is the beginning of wisdom, this is the foundation of wisdom, the fear of God. When we begin to understand that relationship, when we increasingly have that kind of response to this holy, awe-filling God, it doesn't lead to a kind of frozen fear or a rigid, lifeless rule-keeping, but even joy, even joy. Notice verse 15 Here is joy in God's good gifts. Verse 15 says, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now we'll come back to this idea of enjoyment in God and his gifts a little bit later because it comes up again in chapter 9 at greater length. We'll deal with it then. But notice here, it's fear and joy. Verse 17, yet acknowledge there are still mysteries with this God. Wisdom before this God means fearing him, enjoying his gifts, but also the humility to recognize that God's work is inscrutable, unknowable, unaccountable. Matt quoted for us earlier from Daniel 4, the Lord does whatever he wishes. He does it in the army of heaven. He does it among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him, what have you done? None can hold back his hand. So, verse 17 here, regarding the work of God, man can't find out what is done. Oh, there are some things we can know about God and must know. There are many things he's not revealed. This is wisdom before God. Thirdly, there's wisdom at the cemetery. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. The preacher takes us by the hand once again back to the cemetery, to the place of the dead. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you might protest right now. You might say, hey, we were just there last week. We visited the cemetery last week. We've been to the cemetery or various funerals in our mind's eye Several times in the last month. And that's true. We've covered this ground. He's covered this ground. God here has covered this ground in Ecclesiastes and he covers it again. Lest in the last week you've somehow been able to tune out the prospect of death. We live in a culture that whitewashes death quite a bit. The paramedics quickly cover up a dead body that lays lifeless on the street. A funeral home takes a lifeless body and tries to make it look as alive and as pleasant and natural as possible. And there is nothing wrong with that. From one angle, that's good and right. It honors the dead. It honors the grieving It springs from a decent theology of the body. But it can also keep us from seeing the proper horror of death, the power of death, the ugliness of death. We need to be reminded again and again that this world is under a curse. It's not just unfortunate, it's under a curse. When Adam sinned in the garden, he cast the vote for us all, and we all fell. So we're born bent. Babies come out of the womb screaming in rage. I've seen it four times. (laughs) Every one of my kids came out sinning. I'm sure of it. If they had more power, they would have murdered me. 
We're all born going astray from God. And we live it out, and we live it out, and we live it out unless God intervenes. So you see verse 2, it's both the wicked and the saint. It's both the wise and the fool. It's those who are trying and those who aren't trying in this life. The same event happens to them all, verse 3. You know how in zombie movies, this zombie disease, how many of you watch zombie movies? I've only seen a couple. Have you noticed in zombie movies, the zombie disease has infected a good portion of the population, but not all. Maybe eventually it gets down even to a a family, one family who has to save the world. Maybe maybe it gets down to just Will Smith and his dog. (laughs) Well, the infection of sin in death is actually more pervasive than that. Humanity is completely infected. We are all born dead. Let that sink in again and again. Let death do its thing. D.A. Carson says, death is God's megaphone. Yes, this is my father's world, we like to sing. Yes, he speaks to me in all that's fair. He speaks to me in the rustling grass and in the morning light and the lily white. But he also speaks loud and clear in death. The fool ignores their sentence of death as much as they can. The fool looks at someone else's death and only sees human causes and effects. No theology The fool thinks of death as maybe the results of bad decisions or bad luck. But the wise man will take a good hard look at death again and again and again and ponder his own mortality and consider his own eternal state. In Luke 13... Some people come to Jesus and they ask him about this horrible current event where Pilate killed some guys while they were making their sacrifices at the temple. Their own blood and the blood of the sacrifices were mixed. So Jesus wonders what they're getting at by bringing this up. He says, do you think that they were worse sinners than others? And Jesus just simply turns the screws and he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then Jesus brings up a a similar recent catastrophe. Thirteen people died in a field when a tower just fell on them. Towers aren't really in fields that often. Towers don't just fall down, do they? Well, this one did. Thirteen were dead. Why? And Jesus Wonders whether they're thinking the same question again. Do you think that they were worse sinners than others? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Do we know why one dies at 10 and another dies at 97? No. Do we know why one gets to die in his sleep and one has to die by being brutally murdered? No, we don't know, but Jesus doesn't even bother to ask or answer those kinds of questions. He just cuts right to the point. What about you? They're dead. But what about you? You're alive. Death's coming. You don't know when. Do you think you'll escape it? Do you think you'll do well on the other side? Death doesn't come for worse sinners. It just comes for sinners. It doesn't necessarily come sooner for bad sinners. It can come at any time. Your life's a vapor. And so Jesus says, repent. Repent is, it's a command. It's an invitation. It's so many things all at once. It's it's the other side of the coin, faith being the other. We repent and we believe. Repent is giving up what we had been trusting in, what we had been following, what we had been living in. And having faith means clinging to something else. 
namely Jesus. We'll get to that in just a bit. Fourthly, there's wisdom in the home, at least for just a handful of verses. Verses 7 to 10. Let's read those now. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is wisdom in the home. Now this is the section that we need to spend a little more time on than the others. Chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, instructs us on how to rejoice in God's simple gifts, especially those in and around the home. It's one of those several enjoyment passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, Ecclesiastes is like a a symphony that's written mostly in a minor key, the black keys on a piano. But there are some interludes that switch to the major key and carry some real happy notes. Now let me just give you the references in case you haven't been keeping track. You can read them on your own later on. But here are these enjoyment passages. It's chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. I'd encourage you to write these down and read them on your own as a family later today. Chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Chapter 5, Verse 18 to 20. When we've seen already this morning, chapter 8, verse 15. And now we come to chapter 9, verse 7 to 10, which I just read for us. We will see next week another one in chapter 11. They stand out because they're this beam of light in an otherwise pretty dark room. Can you picture that? A dark room in a beam of light coming in through a little hole. You can see it. It stands out. Now some rather pessimistic scholars see these beams of light in Ecclesiastes as just hopeless resignation. It'd be like the author saying, Since life is so bad and so hard and so short, and since death is inevitable and it might be soon, you might as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you probably are going to die. This is the best we can do. Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. (laughs) Now, other scholars, I think, are right. They see these beams of light regarding joy is actually the most important parts of Ecclesiastes. These are the greatest moments of clarity in Ecclesiastes. These are the fullest conclusions the author has drawn from his long research project on how to live well. I'm convinced of that view. I'm also convinced that from one of these passages to another, they seem to grow in intensity and in clarity, and in detail, maybe even in length. Look for that as you read them together. They seem to move as well from observation, here's what I've seen, that's what chapter 3 says, to commendation, I commend this to you, chapter 8, to now, chapter 9, exhortation. This is the first one. Do this. Go. Get after it. Let's just take this one phrase at a time here in verse 7. Go. Don't wait. Hurry up. Don't wait for more money. Don't wait for better times. Don't wait to feel better, either physically or emotionally. Come on. Let's go. Get happy. Eat and drink. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Of course, this isn't an invitation to gluttony, overeating, or an invitation to drunkenness. Neither is it a license 
to hoard what you have just for yourself and never share it. Neither is it commending constant extravagance. Like only the finest foods. It's it's not commending that. The author could have said something like that. He could have commended filet mignon and Don Perignon. And I have no idea how to pronounce either of those. So I'll just say filet mignon and Don Perignon. (laughs) He could have commended palaces and servants and gold-plated everything. And he didn't. He commended bread and wine. He didn't commend those because... He's describing a pauper's meal. He's not commending frugality and simplicity. In Bible times, bread and wine were staples in the homes of both the wealthy and the poor. Whatever your meal, whatever your daily bread, whatever the Lord puts in front of you for your lunch and dinner today, eat it with joy and with a merry heart. Now, what's the big deal about meals? Why doesn't this say, go enjoy the mountains, go enjoy sunsets, go enjoy music? Well, you should enjoy those. But meals have been the focal point in these enjoyment passages consistently. Why meals? Well, here's some bullet points. There's a strong routine and repetition to our eating, isn't there? We eat frequently. Some of us eat too frequently. We we eat regularly. There's a routine to it. That's good. Meals also speak to God's provision and teach us something about our dependence on him. Meals are pleasurable. God made things to taste good. Food isn't just fuel, it's also fun, isn't it? And ideally, it's communal. It's done with others. Now, I already feel a bit of tension as a preacher of this passage. Because Ecclesiastes 7, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 7, is this glorious welcome mat this invitation to the party. But it's not just an invite. It's not just a welcome mat. It's it's also a command. And because it's a command, it probably exposes some guilt for many of us. Many of us probably need to start there. It may be that Ecclesiastes 9-7 feels a mile away from your experience because your family never eats together. How could you ever do Ecclesiastes 9-7 if you're not actually together for a meal? Maybe the TV or iPhones get in the way, or kids' sports, or just overloaded, conflicting schedules. You may need to start addressing the real practical matters of your life. You may need to start with some demolition work before you can start reframing this beautiful house. You may never have been taught that a meal is to be enjoyed and enjoyed with others. I'll just confess, in our early days of marriage, I was horrible. I was in seminary trying to get a three-year degree done in two years. So I was constantly under the, the gun, under deadlines and I mean, I didn't have the evenings off, but I should have taken meals off. My sweet new wife would make a very nice, creative meal on a very little budget, and I'd come downstairs from my studies. I would devour it in about three or four minutes. I'd rinse my plate, because that's what good husbands do. That's as far as I knew to do at that point. I'd rinse my plate. And I'd go upstairs and get back to work. It took my wife a, a few weeks before she very kindly pointed out that that's not loving. Of course it's not loving. And you may need to be told that that's not right. That's not loving. That's not helpful. That won't get you Ecclesiastes 9, 7. 
So here's the tension I feel. Yes, no doubt most of us have some things to either repent over or fix or change or modify to make Ecclesiastes 9-7 more of a reality. But the passage isn't a rebuke, is it? It is a command, yes, but one worded more like a, a free invitation. Like you're supposed to leap to it. Go, eat with joy, drink with a merry heart. So do your practical evaluation, yes. Do repentance if needed, yes. Ask for forgiveness from your family if that's needed. Make some changes, but then you just sit down. You, you just serve it up. You just eat it up with a smile. You don't come to this table to get the switch or to get a swat. You come with a smile. You're not going to obey this passage, or better, receive this passage under a cloud of guilt or by gritting your teeth, trying harder. It's antithetical to that. And that's why this next phrase is so important in verse 7. For God has already approved what you do. Now, some commentators See that line as God having already approved of the kinds of things that you're going to do. Namely, eating and drinking and enjoying. And that's certainly true. God has approved of that. In the garden, God said, this is all good. It's all very good. So you don't have to wonder whether food and drink is commended by God for you to enjoy. But I think it's more likely that that phrase, God has already approved what you do, refers to God's approval of us, not of food. He's already approved of what you do. That Hebrew word for approved is, is most often used for his acceptance of someone or something. It's his favor. It's his stamp of approval. It's even his delight or his pleasure. But this approval isn't something we earn. It's by grace. Ecclesiastes has made abundantly clear more than once that there is this problem of universal sin and universal guilt. That's why there's universal death. Chapter 7, verse 20, there isn't a righteous man on the earth who does good. Chapter 9, verse 3, the hearts of men are full of evil and madness, and then they die. So we know that none of us should have deeds that are approved by God. We know from the whole Bible that we can't earn that approval. We're too far gone. Our good doesn't cancel out our bad. And our good isn't good enough. It's tainted with sin. Psalm 32 says, Blessed, though, is the one. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That person's approved. Not because they don't have iniquity, not because they mean well but because the Lord doesn't count it. We're marked, approved by God's grace through faith, and that alone. And here's what Ecclesiastes doesn't say, but you have to know since the coming of Christ. All that is in him. Our acceptance is in him. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us or to bear our sins, that we, in him, might have the righteousness of God. Or Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. That's how we're approved. Not just God waiving our sins based on the approval of Christ. Sometimes you'll be offered a loan in the mail, and the envelope will say, pre-approved. Well, I, I may be pre-approved for a loan, but that is not solely by grace, is it? I've earned that. 
I have a decent credit score. I've proven myself, so they're willing to trust me with this enormous loan that I probably can't pay anyway. But, but I'm pre-approved. Not by grace. It's because I got some history. Well, this pre-approval plan of God isn't like that. It's all based on Christ. Christ was faithful. We're, we're leaning on his perfect credit score, or we are bankrupt and doomed and hellbound. Back to Ecclesiastes 9. It's in light of this approval that we joyfully celebrate around the table. We don't obey Ecclesiastes 9.7 in order to get his approval. We live it out because of his approval. And so verse 8, let your garments always be white. The clothing of victory and celebration. Put on your dancing shoes would be one way of putting it today. Not that I have any dancing shoes, but you know what I mean. And always, notice that one word in verse 8, let your garments be always white, constant. Your sins are always forgiven. You have acceptance with God always? Then what do you have to be sad about? And I say this knowing full well that this comes out of a book that is dripping with sadness and that I speak to lives that are dripping with sadness. But if nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, what can man do to me? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So wear white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Another celebration picture. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. I love the wording there. I love that he didn't say, do life with your wife. But enjoy life with your wife. He didn't just say, love your wife. Neither did he just say, enjoy your wife when she's easily enjoyable. No, that's where love steps in. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Of course, this is written to a young man, as I said before, but obviously it applies to both sexes, to both husbands and wives. So wives, enjoy life with the husband you love. Now here's where I feel another tension as your pastor preaching this passage. I know that some here don't have a husband or a wife, and you would want one. You do want one. You pray for one. And I know that there's a temptation right now to think that it's impossible to do Ecclesiastes 9 without a spouse. It's not. It is a little bit different, yes, but it's not. Remember that occasionally Ecclesiastes gets specific, like here, enjoy your wife. That's directed to married people, obviously. Other times, it is more general. Like in chapter 5, verse 18, there, whatever we have, it says God has given it, and we need to accept it as our lot. It's our portion, and we need to rejoice in what he's given. Remember from chapter 7, verse 14, there will be days of prosperity and adversity. When we're in the former, rejoice. When we're in the latter, consider. Just keep considering. So yes, a single person, a divorcee, a widow or widower will probably have more meals alone than a married couple will. So where you can have more meals with others, where you can invite people to your table, single or not, do it. Where you can insert yourself into the tables of others. Let me just say, if you're in this church, go ahead and do it. And yes, empty nesters will eat meals at a quiet table for two for the rest of their marriage. Probably sometimes longing for those days when the olive 
branches were around the table, and it was a table of six or seven or eight. Well, some parents might be glad that those olive branches have moved on. Less to feed, less noise, less competition for conversation. Some will miss it. But there's a season for everything. So praise God for that next word in verse 10, whatever. Not whatever, like teenagers say today. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Give it your all. Give it your gusto. Do it with a smile. Don't do it unto men, as Colossians 3 says, but for the Lord. Do it with all your might. Why? Oh, here comes that minor key again. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Back to death, really? Again? Haven't we just been there? Yeah. You see, before you think that all this enjoyment stuff, food, drink, wife, good work, before you think that can take you straight to the third heaven, don't forget you're still here on earth. You're still under the curse. God is good. He has good gifts. There's much to enjoy. we got to work hard on our celebration, Christian. Don't forget. There's still thorns and thistles. Death is still coming. Husbands will leave wives and wives will leave husbands. Children will die before their parents. So whatever you're going to do, do it with all your might. Because there is an end to this life. Enjoy life with your wife all the days of your vain life. It's... At times futile, at times it's, it's fleeting, it's mysterious. Which leads then fifth and very quickly to what I'd call wisdom in the upside down. Wisdom in the upside down. Let's read verses 11 to 18 and I'll show you what I mean. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the sounding of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is wisdom in the upside down. By that I mean life in this fallen world. When sin entered this world, much got flipped upside down and backwards. And now this world is full of surprises. It's loaded with unknowns. It's littered with bitter ironies. Like when we die and how we die. That's just one example. In verse 12, it's like a fish getting snapped up in a net. That's what death's like. Or here's an upside down thing. When a mighty king is conquered by a little old wise man who just has a good thought. So wisdom is good and it is useful. But sometimes the, the wise are ignored. Verse 16. Often the words of the wise are just a whisper in a really loud environment. So listen carefully. The wise life isn't easy, but it's beautiful and it's rich. Keep listening. Who is like the wise? What is wisdom like? 
Well, we can't take the time to get there organically today. But let me just remind you that Jesus in the New Testament is described to us as wisdom. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says to the Corinthians that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom for us and righteousness. So you want to know what wisdom is? Look to the Bible, yes, not the world. Listen carefully because it whispers, it doesn't shout. But look specifically at Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God's wisdom. He's the key that unlocks all these doors. His wisdom was a happy kind of wisdom. Do you remember his first miracle? He's at a wedding where, where the wine is running out. And he turns water into wine. Really good wine. And lots of it. Now I know that one of the reasons for Jesus doing that was to signify that the new wine of the new covenant had arrived. Right? There's something to that. But... but but he could have just taught us that. He didn't have to do it at a party. He didn't have to make great wine and much of it. But he did. So let's rejoice. Let's pray now and ask for his help. Lord, may all our enjoyment in this life ultimately be in enjoyment of you. So keep us not far from thoughts of you when we enjoy these gifts that you've given. We don't want to be distracted by the gifts, but we, Lord, we do want to enjoy them because your word tells us to enjoy them. You've given them. We thank you today for, for food, for things that taste good, for the work you've provided, for the people in our lives. And Lord, we celebrate all that in and through Jesus, who is our wisdom and our satisfaction. So today, we joyfully adore you. Help us to sing that right now for your namesake and glory. Amen.